On today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking a lot about the Patriots and their recent spending, spe- spending spree and what it means for the future of the team, what it means for this year's um, this year's team, um, and how all these players will, will impact the team, uh, positive and negative. We'll also take a look at uh, Cam Newton being back and kind of what that means for the Patriots. I'll also take a look at other free agency news around the rest of the NFL as free agency has opened. Um, we will also get to some March Madness, the men's and women's tournaments about to get underway. So we will take a look at both brackets, preview both of them, give you uh, players to watch, uh, Final Four prediction, um, players to watch, all that sort of stuff. So that will be um, exciting as March Madness is, uh, we are the day of March Madness games start this evening. We will uh, also get to the NHL. We'll talk about the Bruins and their recent play. We'll also get to some uh, news and notes for the Bruins and around the rest of the NHL. Uh, we will also get to the Celtics and um, the concerns that uh, we that we have based on watching them uh, recently. Uh, we'll also take a look at news and notes from around the rest of the NBA as there were some trades that went on yesterday, so we'll take a look at both of those. Uh, we will also get to the Red Sox and... The rest of the MLB as we get closer and closer to opening day. Let's get it. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the show. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Hayden. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about this week. Um, I'm very looking, very excited, very looking forward to this week's um, episode. we got a lot to get to. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And... I'm very excited because this is just such a great time of year, typically, that, you know, you have NBA and NHL in full swing, you got March Madness coming up, you got, you know, NFL with free agency, you know, it's just, it's one of those, it's the time of year that I think a lot of people love, you know, and I know that it's not been a typical, you know, this is not, this is not how it typically goes, you know, because I think we're still you know, living in, in, in the pandemic. And I think that, you know, a lot of us still feel like we are not, you know, really back to normal. But I think sports is really one of the only things that is allowing us to, you know, feel that we have this normal back. So I just think that it's it's wonderful that we are still able to, able to have this kind of activity, even in a pandemic. And I think, you know, March Madness, you hope that that goes okay, you know, and we'll talk about it as we get more into it, but just really excited to be able to talk about sports and be able to do a podcast and give you guys, you know, all the sports news coming out. So 
Let's get going right away. Uh, the Patriots have spent a lot of money. You know, that's that's stating the obvious. You know, they have uh, spent as much in free agency, you know, almost as they've spent in the last, you know, it's not exactly how much they've spent in the last 10 years combined, but I think it's almost half of that. You know, if they've spent, I don't know what the number is, but I think that they are like almost halfway to that or halfway to that, you know, in this off season. And so a lot of people I think have been talking about why this is happening. You know, why are the Patriots all of a sudden, you know, spending all this money? They're never a team that's going to spend all this money. You know, they're usually cheap. And so I think the simple answer to this is they have $60 million in cap space. I think that's, that's the simplest answer that I can give as to, you know, why they're throwing out, you know, all this money to different players. You know, they've never had this amount of cap space before. And I think that, you know, some people maybe were skeptical that, oh, okay, yeah, like, good luck, you know, like, you're like, are, are you really going to pay, you know, contracts to all these guys? And, you know, the Patriots have definitely proven those people wrong that, yeah, they are willing to go out and spend. And, you know, this team's never had this much cap space before. And so, you know, I think that that's what you need to understand, first of all, is that the Patriots have a lot of cap space, the third most cap space in the league going into this free agency period that, you know, the tampering period began on Monday. Teams could start agreeing to contracts with players in principle. And then, you know, yesterday they become official. Um, So I think that's the simple answer to me is that the Patriots had 60 million in cap space and, you know, you're going to go out and improve the roster and the Patriots, honestly, did not have a great roster last year when it came to, you know, talent and just overall production from a number of different positions. And the Patriots have gone out and they have addressed some of these needs, you know, and I think the biggest need that they have gone out and addressed was tight end, you know, and I'll be honest, I I wasn't sure that they were going to go this route in free agency. You know, I had some ideas of what they might do and I thought, okay, Maybe they'll sign one tight end. They'll sign Johnny Smith, Hunter Henry, sign him to a decent contract, you know, and that's what they'll do. Or I thought, you know, maybe they think they can bring in kind of an older veteran player like a Kyle Rudolph, you know, or possibly look at a player like Zach Ertz in a trade. Um, I didn't think that they were going to go out and sign the top two tight ends in free agency. I really didn't think that was going to happen, but it's happened. And I think that the Patriots have signed, you know, arguably two of the best players in free agency. And, you know, first, Jonu Smith is, I just think, is such a great fit for the Patriots' offense because he gives you that versatility. He can line up on the line of scrimmage. He can line up, you know, in the slot. He can line up out, out wide. He can line up in the backfield if you want him to. You know, just so much versatility and has the ability to make plays after the catch. And... You know, we all know the Patriots had a lot of trouble last season with big chunk plays of 20 or more yards. I don't know how many plays they had, but it probably was near the bottom of the league, may have been the worst in the league. So it's important to go out and get some guys that can help you, you know, get more of these chunk plays. Now, you know, Jonu Smith's not a guy that's going to go deep and, you know, haul in 20 to 25 yard passes, but he's a guy that can turn five to seven yard receptions 
into 20-yard gains. You know, he's one of those guys that is like a freak athlete and technically is at tight end. But if he really worked at it, he probably could be a wide receiver. You know, so getting one of those kind of hybrid guys is just massive. And then going out and getting Hunter Henry, who is kind of your more traditional tight end, guy who's going to line up on the line of scrimmage most of the time, you know, is going to kind of go down the seam a lot like Gronk did. Um, And so I think that you are signing two tight ends that are different skill sets, but skill sets that like the Patriots have needed so badly, I think from that position in particular. Um, And so getting both guys is huge. Now, you know, Bill Belichick does like his offensive players, his skill position players to be able to block well. And, you know, Smith and Henry aren't the best, you know, they're certainly not the worst either, but I think, you know, they're, they're, they're decent blockers. I wouldn't say that they're outstanding, but you know, with the Patriots and some of the moves that they've made in free agency and in some trades, like that's going to be a really scary offensive line uh, to go up against considering that they just got Trent Brown. Um, they brought Ted Karras back, um, you know, so it's going to be a good, solid offensive line. Now, I know some people are concerned with, you know, David Andrews, and he most likely is is leaving, you know, and we saw that Tooney left also. So I think that there's some concern there, but I think it is solid to know that you have brought in Trent Brown and you have brought in Ted Karras, two guys that have played for the team and kind of know what's expected of them. They kind of know what their role is going to be, and it's kind of, you know, a smarter thing to do than maybe bringing in an outside player that you kind of don't really know what you're going to get. Now, I think with losing Andrews, assuming that they lose Andrews, I think you could likely see them go and draft a center um, in the draft. Um, But again, the Patriots, even after all these moves that they've made, and they made a couple more, you know, yesterday and last night, they still have about $30 million in cap space. So, the Patriots could, in theory, bring back Andrews, although I guess I would be surprised because it seems like um, he was going to hit the free agent market and kind of see what he could get out there. So I think that that's something to keep your eye on, but I think it should help you that they signed Ted Karras. Now, for some of the other signings that they've had, Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne, you know, I think those deals are, are interesting, and I think that those are two wide receivers that are not, you know, game breaker type receivers. They're not, you know, Allen Robinson. They're not Juju Smith-Schuster. They're not, you know, Kenny Galladay. But I think that it, this is very, this should be very clear to people that the Patriots are trying to build the offense around the tight ends, much like they did when Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez with, were with the team, that the offense was kind of built around those two guys. And, you know, they didn't have superstar receivers, but they had some solid guys that they could surround them with. And so I think that's exactly what they're doing. I think Bourne is a very solid, very under-the-radar type player um, that could really do well uh, in New England. I think that, you know, I don't want to start comparing him to guys, but I think his skill set with Dion Branch, I think, is very, very, I think that's a reasonable comparison. Not a guy that's going to kill you with speed, you know, is not going to be a guy that's going to run away from, from people, but he's going to have be a guy with that short area quickness that the Patriots love in wide receivers. And I know that it's not the sexiest thing, but it's 
the Patriots offense with the way their passing offense works, it relies so much on timing and short area quickness. And, you know, Bourne, I think, is one of the quickest guys in the league. Now, he's not necessarily fast, but he's quick. You know, and I think that he's a guy that could absolutely have a huge season. You know, no, it doesn't matter who the quarterback is. I think he could be really good. Now, Nelson Aguilar is more of a speed threat. You know, he's more of a deep threat that you're going to, you know, chuck the ball 40, 50 yards in the air and you're going to try to get him to run under it. He's one of those speed guys that, you know, can get behind a defense, can do what's called taking the top off the defense. He's a guy that can do that. Now, you know, we'll talk about Cam Newton in a moment, but, you know, that's a move that leads me to believe that they are really going to try to um, add another quarterback. That you don't sign someone like Nelson Aguilar if Cam Newton's going to be your quarterback. Because Cam, not the best at throwing the deep ball. You know, he didn't really throw many deep balls last year. Um, And so I think that signing Aguilar should tell some people that, uh, yeah, Cam Newton's not, 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 not the guy. You know, and I know that, yes, they've brought him back and, I know I'm getting into it a little too early, but we'll talk about that more. But I think just overall for this signing, Aguilar is a guy who, you know, high draft pick in Philly, kind of underwhelmed for a couple years, has had problems with drops. Uh, He kind of still has those issues a little bit, um, but he performed really well in Vegas last year. I thought that it was really a um, kind of a, like one of one, like a most improved type of year where he, had a change of scenery and performed really well in Oakland, performed really well in that offense. Um, And so I think that it's a smart signing. So you have a receiver who's kind of a short area quickness type guy, and then you have a speed burner. And so I think that it kind of was smart that the Patriots went this route with wide receiver, you know, getting guys like this rather than going out and getting like a big name guy who most likely was going to cost a lot of money. And I think that that's why you're seeing a lot of these big-name receivers haven't been signed yet because they think that they are wanting a lot of money, and the Patriots are probably one of those teams that, like, we're not going to pay you, you know, this much money. Now, I know people are saying, oh, you know, good that they're not cheap. Well, it's not exactly that they, you know, are just spending, like, crazy in free agency. I know that's what it looks like, but I think they're being smart about some of the signings that they're making that you would think, okay, they're you know, being reckless, they're just throwing money at guys. But I think that if you look at some of the contract breakdowns for a lot of these guys, you know, the guaranteed money really isn't all that bad. You know, I think that the most most guaranteed money they have tied up in one guy is Judon, um, who's tied up for two years and $30 million guaranteed. Um, and that's the next guy I want to talk about. So the Patriots definitely are a team that, uh, was lacking a little bit in in the pass rush this past year um, and really struggled against the run. Um, and so I think that's why you saw Godshaw getting signed. Um, it was had a really good season in Miami last year. Or he was, it was either last year or two years ago. Um, maybe it was two years ago, but a guy that has a, can, is a very good tackler, a guy that you can throw in in the middle and I think is really going to help is really going to help you defend the run, gives you some beef, you know, up front. And I think Judon is kind of more of a guy that I think is going to rush the passer, but I think he also can help in run support because he's just a big dude um, and is really hard to move. He's a guy that, 
just is a big body and I think is going to help you in so many different ways. You know, it's going to help you against the run. It's going to help you improve that pass rush. And I think it's going to help, you know, as kind of being another really solid guy that you can surround some of the young linebackers with, uh, with Winovich, Uche, and Anthony Jennings. I think that they will just eat it up, you know, with some of these guys who are really talented. And they brought Kyle Van Noy back last night. You know, we thought that last year the linebacking core was such a huge weakness. It now looks like it's going to be a strength. You know, now that you have Hightower back, you've got Judon that you signed, you've got Van Noy back, you know, adding on to those young linebackers who looked pretty solid in the in the time that they played last year. So I think everything's shaping up really, really well uh, for the defense. So um, Jalen Mills was also another contract that I think initially kind of surprised some people um, because, you know, secondary has been such a, great position of strength for the Patriots in the last couple of years. Um, and a lot of people were confused, you know, why are you giving this guy, you know, the amount of money that you're giving him? And, you know, I think that it's versatility. Bill Belichick likes that. Now, you know, he played at safety and at cornerback for Philadelphia last year. It's actually, I think, had snaps at, at like a couple of the linebacker spots, maybe when the Eagles were or shorthanded. Now, I understand that he's a little bit better at cornerback than he is at safety, um, but I think that Bill Belichick just loves that versatility. And, you know, whether a guy has been good or bad being versatile, like I think Belichick is definitely a coach that can, you know, coach up guys and kind of make them into better players. You know, I'll bring up Pat, Patrick Chung, who actually just announced his retirement this morning, which was a little bit of a surprise, um, and I'll get to that in a moment. But a guy like Patrick Chung is a great example. You know, came into the Patriots, was a second-round pick, if I'm not mistaken. Kind of had, you know, some trouble with the Patriots in his first stint with the team. You know, and then his second stint when he came back, he was a much different player, a much better player. Um, and so I think that Bill Belichick's a guy that can work really well with some of these guys that maybe you know, don't play well for a certain period of time, but then they come to the team or they come back to the team and they perform really well. So I think that, you know, you really could see Mills at any position, but I also saw something that I thought was interesting on Twitter. I forget who said it, but there was something to the effect of Mills is a guy that you could possibly use as a matchup guy, a matchup defensive back to possibly use against certain players um, and specifically against tight ends. Um, and a guy that, you know, you could throw in and, you know, put him on a Travis Kelsey or a Mark Andrews or, you know, any tight end that you go up against that you think, okay, the defense is going to have a little trouble with them. Let's just put this guy on him, have him follow him the whole game. And so I think that also might be why um, they went out and got Mills. So, you know, with, with Chung's retirement, you know, this move now makes a lot more sense, you know, that. I think initially we thought Chung was coming back um, and going to play this season, but I'm wondering if the Patriots kind of knew that this was going to happen, um, and maybe this is why they went out and signed Jalen Mills, because, you know, you're losing a guy like Chung. You kind of need a little bit more depth at that safety spot, but I will say that, you know, Kyle Duggar is going to get a lot more, you know, looks this season at safety, that he's going to probably be playing a lot more um and so I think that, you know, getting someone like Mills is a solid move. I know that some people 
you know, might disagree with that, but I think that this is a solid move. Another solid move that they made, uh, bringing back Justin Bethel, special teams, um, you know, ace, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term. But, you know, this is a guy that's been outstanding on special teams, definitely is a guy that, you know, can step into a similar role as Matthew Slater. Not going to say that he, you know, is the same type of leader, but he's the same type of player. Just a really good, really smart player. Um, And this is why the Patriots just are so good on special teams. You know, it's like, it's one of these things that, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter to some people, you know, I think from, from the eye test when you're watching a game, but it's like the Patriots are a team where they rarely give up return touchdowns. Um, And it's because they put such an emphasis on these positions on special teams. You know, if they didn't, you would see them giving up kick and punt returns constantly. You know, they're one of the best special teams, you know, one of the best special teams groups, you know, really, really in the entirety of that Super Bowl, of that, you know, Super Bowl Brady run, that special teams was such a huge emphasis. And it's a big reason why they, you know, won, that they won so many Super Bowls. Not to say that that's why, but, you know, having a team that's really good in all three phases, you know, gets you a lot of championships. So, um, so I think, you know, in free agency, again, I don't think it's any type of, you know, big grand, like, you know, oh, Belichick wants to get back at Brady or like any of this, any of these wild theories that you're hearing, you know, it's like the Patriots did not have a good season last year. They have 60, they had 60 plus million in, in cap space third most in the league, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to address needs. Like, I don't, I guess I don't understand why this is such a big, like, surprise. I mean, maybe it, I mean, it kind of is a surprise that they've spent, you know, all the money that they've spent. You know, I didn't see this coming, but at the same time, you know, you have to understand that there are some certain context things to consider that, you know, the Patriots have a lot of cap space. Not a lot of other teams have the amount of cap space that the Patriots do. You know, the Patriots are, I think, one of a couple teams that have, you know, a ridiculous amount. And a lot of other teams, you know, don't have the amount of cap space. And that's probably why you're not seeing as much competition for some of the guys the Patriots are going out and signing that, you know, other teams just don't have the ability to sign some of these guys. Um, and so I think also, like, the the, the context or the, the contracts of some of these guys are important to look at in, in terms of the guaranteed money and, like, you know, what they're guaranteed to pay these guys. And I wouldn't say that any of these guys are really, you know, overpaid. Like if you're going to have a spending spree, in, spending spree in free agency, more often than not, you're going to overpay. But I wouldn't say that really any of these contracts are gross overpayments. You know, maybe you could argue that from Matt Judon and uh, Jonu Smith. But other than that, you know, none of these deals are really bad. You know, none of these deals are deals that you look at and say, wow, like they really did not make a good decision here. Someone might say that about um, Aguilar, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's only it, it, it's only a two-year deal. It's really not like they're locked into a long-term deal. And I think that's also why you didn't see them go out and sign uh, an, uh, not Allen Robinson because he actually was franchise-tagged. Um, a Juju Smith-Schuster or a Kenny Galladay is because, you know, 
you don't you don't want to really give any of these guys big long-term contracts and i think that's where you get into mistakes where you sign a guy for four or five years specifically at wide receiver and it ends up you know just not being a smart investment and i think that the patriots have made smart investments with Aguilar and with Bourne because i think they're you know accurately paid for what they are um so i think that you know it's not any grand mystery, you know, I also kind of got irritated with some people that were of the opinion that, oh, you know, why is, why wasn't Bill Belichick doing this when, you know, Brady was here to get him more weapons? Well, well, like, well, genius, they didn't have 60 million in cap space, you know, they didn't have this much cap space, you know, a, a year ago, two years ago, like, this is unheard of for them, you know, and I just found it kind of like, I don't know. I kind of thought that that was a weird thing to say, um, you know, and I think that obviously there are going to be some people that, you know, have obvious biases against the Patriots and, you know, are going to try to say that, oh, you know, this is how you screw up a season by spending all this money at free agency or, you know, comments like, oh, you don't win a Super Bowl during free agency. Well, Tampa Bay kind of signed Tom Brady last year during free agency. And, you know, I don't know. Would some people calling that call that winning free agency? Probably. Um, But I think that, again, these are all smart moves. These are all players that can help the team. You know, we're signed for a reason. And um, I think you're really going to see a very improved defense. Um, Now, obviously, the offseason is far from over. There still is a lot more things that can happen. Um, but I think the Patriots addressing areas of need is such a hugely important thing, and they've been able to do that, um, I think. So naturally, I think the other big story, um, and this was before all this free agency stuff happened, um, before all these contracts got announced, you know, this, uh, the Patriots decided to bring back Cam Newton uh, for a, you know, initially— was being reported as a 14-year deal. And then, you know, naturally, some people chose to uh, lose their minds and freak out and, you know, not understand why the Patriots were paying him that much money. And, you know, if you just kind of wait and see, typically it kind of uh, makes more sense. And it did make more sense. So the Patriots signing him to that deal, heavy, heavy incentives. Um, so exactly, I think it's 13.6. It can be up to 13.6. Um, the base value of Cam's contract is $5 million. So um, in other words, you know, $5 million is probably what he will end up making. You know, he could make up to 13.6 if he hits certain incentives, you know, and all. And most of these were, you know, Pro Bowl um, you know, going to the playoffs, Super Bowl MVP, things like that, things like probably won't happen. But if they do, you know, then that means that Cam has rediscovered his MVP form and the Patriots probably will have, you know, won a Super Bowl, you know. So all those incentives were like, it kind of made the contract a lot more palatable. Um, and so I think what is going on here, and some people, you know, rightfully were, confused as to you know why they would re-sign him based on the year that he had last year and really struggled with accuracy now I know that you know his completion percentage was high 
but it does it didn't necessarily mean that he was you know good like he had a lot of games that really were not good and you know some of that might be due to you know the covid situation i think that that's very very real uh, it's very real very possible that it really affected him you know and i think that you know learning or attempting to learn how the patriots offense works in a uh truncated preseason or truncated you know training camp no preseason you know really no like nothing that you could like ask a player to actually be able to do in a decent amount of time and then it's like he gets covid and then it's like things really changed you know so i think that this signing to me is kind of a safety net that this is not something that means cam is going to be their starter necessarily week one of the 2021 nfl season you know this is more of a safety net in case other things don't work out you know if the patriots decide to go after jimmy garoppolo at some point you know do they try to dip into the deshaun watson sweepstakes you know the texans still are adamant that they're not going to trade him but you know, I mean, good, good, good luck with that stance when he doesn't show up to training camp. I'll just say that. Um, so, you know, or the Patriots maybe are in store for a trade up in the draft. Do they try to trade up and get Justin Fields or Trey Lance? Now, I think that the draft, the trading up and drafting is much more likely than the other scenario. Um, but I guess you never know. Um, so I think that this is kind of a Worst case scenario, you have to start Cam week one, you know, and what I think is going to happen based on, you know, some of the moves that the Patriots have made, I think what's going to happen is the Patriots are going to try to trade up in the draft and are going to try to select Trey Lance or Justin Fields. And, you know, they will bring in one of those guys. The idea will be that they compete for the starting job with Cam Newton and is a, a talented player that, you know, will be on the bench and most likely... Cam Newton will start week one, and then, you know, by maybe the end of the season, one of the rookie guys is starting, um, you know, or one of the rookie guys really impresses in training camp, and they take the job, and they take the job week one. Um, so I think that is the most likely scenario, that, okay, you could see Cam as the day, as the week one starter, but it could be a very different context than some people are thinking. I think some people are thinking that, you know, this is their quarterback answer, that they went out and got Cam Newton and brought him back again. And that, I think when you look at that contract and you look at how laced with incentives it is, the Patriots don't believe that Cam Newton is their answer and is their answer right now at quarterback. Um, and I think that obviously some of the free agent signings, you know, should ease you a little bit that, you know, A, worst case scenario, if Cam has to play, he has some better players to throw to, or B, you know, um, this is an offense that they are trying to build around someone else, you know, whether it's Garoppolo or whether it's Trey Lance or Fields, who, you know, honestly have very similar skill sets to Cam Newton. Um, you know, Fields, I think, is a guy who has a better arm. Um, but, you know, I think that it'll be very interesting to see when we get closer to the draft. But I think that I really would not be surprised if the Patriots chose to trade up in the draft, trade their first-round pick, maybe a couple of other picks to move up. Um, and I think it would be smart if the Patriots chose to trade picks from this draft, 
you know, because I think that they've addressed a lot of needs in free agency. So it might not mean that you have to go out and sign and draft, you know, players at a certain position. Obviously it would help, but I think that this team really is a quarterback away from being like a really good, solid football team. Um, And I think honestly they are right now. If you put Cam Newton out there with this offense, with a full training camp and preseason and all that, you know, they probably would be better than last season. They might even make the playoffs. Um, So, you know, I think that obviously there might be some concerns with Cam Newton, you know, depending on what the rest of the Patriots offseason looks like. You know, do they draft someone? And is Cam going to be okay, you know, relinquishing that starting role? Um, And I just, I would say to some people that don't think that Cam would be comfortable with that. Well, you know, I find that hard to believe that that wouldn't be a topic of conversation when the Patriots decided to re-sign him, that it's hard for me to believe that they wouldn't say anything about like, okay, you know, Cam, we're going to try to bring in a younger quarterback and you might, you know, lose the starting job. I have a hard time believing that they wouldn't, you know, have a conversation like that. Um, So it's good. It's exciting for the Patriots. I think that um, this is, this is, Something to be excited about if you're a Patriots fan, that they have gone out and brought in some really good, solid players. And, you know, I think really it's quarterback. And once they get that settled, you know, then I think start to really get excited and think about this team's uh, prospects um, as we get closer to the season, as we get into, you know, training camp and all that. So looking at the rest of the NFL and free agency, we'll kind of look at some teams division by division, see, you know, what certain things that they've done. Um, So starting with the Bills, they did bring in Emmanuel Sanders. He was released by the Saints um, earlier. They did bring back Matt Milano and John Feliciano, uh, linebacker and offensive lineman, respectively. The Dolphins have been relatively active. Um, They have brought in a couple of uh, former Patriots, uh, Justin Coleman, cornerback, Adam Butler signing a new a new contract with the Dolphins. Um, that was, you know, too bad because I thought that Adam Butler did have a strong season with the Patriots last year, but Patriots obviously choosing to go in a different direction. Uh, Malcolm Brown running back also signing with the Dolphins. Jacoby Brissett is in Miami, you know, most likely taking over that kind of um, m- mentor role that I think Ryan Fitzpatrick had last year uh, for Tua. So I think that, you know, that's a solid, smart signing there. Uh, Definitely a Patriot connection there with uh, Brissett, with um, Brian Flores, the former Patriot uh, de facto defensive coordinator. Uh, The Jets brought in Corey Davis. They are also, I think last I heard, they are potentially interested in Juju Smith-Schuster. Obviously, there's some connection there because Darnold and Smith-Schuster played together at USC, so that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, The Bengals, I think, are a team that might be interested also in Smith-Schuster. I think I had seen the Browns bringing in John Johnson, the safety from uh, the the Rams, and the Steelers uh, have released... I think that they released Vince Williams, one of their... uh, one of their good pass rushers. So uh, very interesting there. I think that they're a team that is kind of not in a position where they can sign a lot of players. Uh, The Texans have made a couple of interesting moves. 
Obviously, the Patriots trading Marcus Cannon last week uh, for an exchange of draft picks, I believe, as well. Um, and the Texans bringing in Tyrod Taylor, you know, someone that they can, you know, again, just have there in case he needs to play. Kind of similar to how the Patriots are approaching the Cam Newton thing that, you know, Taylor, if, if he needs to play, then that's fine. You know, if he's a backup, that's fine. He's a guy that can still play. Um, they also had acquired uh, Shaq Lawson. Um, they also brought in former Patriot Derek Rivers. Uh, Christian Kirksey they brought in on a one-year deal. Um, and then Terrence Brooks, obviously a former Patriot uh, there as well. Um, the Eagles and the Colts made the Carson Wentz trade official. Uh, the Jaguars, another team that has a lot of uh, cap space brought in Philip Dorsett, Marvin Jones, uh, Malcolm Brown, Shaquille Griffin. So they've been pretty active. You know, they're, I think, I think we're the team that had the most cap space this season. So they've signed a lot of players. Uh, the Titans have had kind of an interesting offseason as they've lost, obviously, John New Smith, but they brought in Danico Autry. They brought back Jayon Brown. And then signing, it was Bud Dupree was the other Steelers player that, um, they had been unable to re-sign, so he goes to Tennessee. Uh, the Titans also signed Janoris Jenkins. Um, out in the AFC, you have Joe Tooney, obviously, with the Chiefs. Um, they also agreed to bring Kyle Long out of retirement, so he is signed with the Chiefs, so they have two offensive linemen back after losing a couple. Uh, the Raiders are decently active, bringing in Ngakwe from the Ravens. Obviously, it used to play for Jacksonville a couple of years ago, but he's still a pretty solid player, Solid player, and they did bring in John Brown as kind of a replacement for um, Aguilar, if you will. Um, you know, in the NFC, it's, things have been pretty quiet. The Giants are bringing back Leonard Williams. Uh, the Washington football team um, brought in Curtis Samuel. I think I saw that yesterday. Uh, William Jackson, cornerback, is also brought in. And Ryan Fitzpatrick, his ninth team now in Washington. So a couple interesting moves for Washington there. Curtis Samuel was a potential Patriot target, but obviously choosing Washington. Uh, the Bears, you know, were kind of in on, well, not really. They were very interested in Russell Wilson, but obviously not able to get that. So they went and signed Andy Dalton. You know, obviously not something that Bears fans wanted to hear, but, you know, you know, gotta 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 have some someone some plan at the quarterback position, um, and then you have the Lions signing Jamal Williams from Green Bay, uh, Romeo Okwara re-signed in Detroit. Uh, Green Bay was able to re-sign Aaron Jones. The Vikings brought in Dalvin Tomlinson, which was interesting. He was a name that was brought up as a Patriot target, um, and they also did bring in Patrick Peterson. Um, kind of an aging guy, but obviously still has some skill. So he's uh, in Minnesota now. The Panthers bringing in Hassan Reddick from uh, formerly of the um, Cardinals. Um, the Saints, obviously, the announcement Drew Brees had retired. So um, happy trails to Drew. I understand that he will be on NBC Sports, I think, this season as analyst. So uh, it'll be good to be able to see him a little bit. Um, so the Saints bringing back Jameis Winston and uh, T Taysom Hill. So be interesting to see what their thought process is there with their quarterback. Uh, the Buccaneers have brought back a lot of key players. Gronk, Chris Godwin got the uh, franchise tag. 
they did bring back Shaquille Barrett and Levante David um, and Kevin Minter. I was not surprised that uh, David that Levante David stayed. I really didn't think there was anywhere else he could go. Um, the Cardinals have been fairly active, obviously signing um, J.J. Watt. And then you have Rodney Hudson that came over in a trade, and then Calvin Beecham they re-signed. Um, and then um, A.J. Green they brought in might signal an end of uh, Larry Fitzgerald's tenure, but I guess we'll see. Uh, Marcus Golden re-signing, and then obviously J.J. Watt we talked about. Um, Cardinals did also bring in Matt Prater, an interesting move there. It was one of the kickers that was a free agent, so he's in there. Um, Leonard Floyd agreed to uh, re-sign with the Rams. Then um, the 49ers making a couple interesting moves. Jason Verrett is back. Um Juszczyk is also back, the fullback, and then uh, the 49ers were able to re-sign Trent Williams to a massive deal. Becomes the highest paid offensive lineman in history. Um, And then the Seahawks bringing in Gerald Everett as kind of another option for Russell Wilson. They did also bring in Gabe Jackson in a trade with the Raiders. So a lot of a lot of stuff going on with the NFL, a lot of free agency news. So uh, make sure to stay up to date. There's a lot happening. See what else, you know, the Patriots decide to do. Um, it will be a very interesting next few weeks as maybe more of the roster comes into view. So, you know, we uh, exhausted a lot of time talking about the NFL, but uh, we also are going to talk about the NCAA tournaments the men and the women, uh, men get underway tonight with the first four, and then the women, I believe, start on Saturday with their first round games. So it had, tip, it had used to be that the uh, men's tournament had divided the uh, first four into two nights. That is not the case this year. All four first four games will be going on tonight. And so you can watch them on True TV, I believe. Um, and TBS. I think that that's the case also. Um, So as we take a look at some of these games, we'll get to these games first, you know, and then we'll kind of get into more of the tournament. So um, a couple of 16 seeds playing tonight and a couple of the 11 seeds, so the team's on the bubble. Um, So get started at 5 o'clock in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. So this will be at Assembly Hall in are at the University of Indiana, Texas Southern, and Mount St. Mary's gets it going at 5-10. Both of those, the 16 seed winner, will play Michigan in the first round. Um, and then you will get Drake against Wichita State, not Drake the rapper, uh, Drake the team from, I believe, Iowa, um, playing in the West region. Uh, winner will play... I honestly forget who the winner will play. I'll be able to figure that out when I look at a bracket in a second. Um, so they will get underway from West, West Lafayette, Indiana at Mackey Arena. I'm not sure what campus that is. Um, and then at 840, you have Appalachian State against Norfolk State. Winner will play Gonzaga in the first round. And then you have UCLA and Michigan State, the nightcap at 957. The winner will play USC in the East region. I believe USC. Um, might have to look at that again. 
Um, so that is the first four. And then getting into the bracket, I think I'll take a look at some some teams to watch uh, for the men's tournament. So obviously, you know, the one seeds, you know, you want to watch how the one seeds do. Um, so I think naturally those are teams to watch. You know, I think that looking at the number one seeds, Gonzaga probably is the best number one seed. Uh, Baylor is not close behind, I would say, for the other one seed. I'm just going to say Michigan just because Isaiah Livers is out for the tournament, and that's really huge. Um, and Illinois, I think, is playing really good basketball at the moment. So I would say Michigan probably is the weakest one seed, but you know, all four of those teams have been really, really good start to finish this season. So you know, those are some teams to watch. I think in the West region, Kansas, I mentioned, is a team to watch because you know they've not really been talked about much this season, but they're well coached. They always have a lot of talent. They're teams to watch. Um, Santa Barbara and Ohio are two teams to watch in this bracket. Um, Ohio is a team that can score, and I think that could present problems for Virginia. Um, and Creighton is, I don't think, is playing great basketball going into the tournament. But then again, that's not always, you know, an indicator of whether a team will win in the tournament. Um, I think Iowa is a team to watch. They're a pretty good team that can beat you inside and out. Um, but I don't, I like as I said to someone. I don't think that Gonzaga is facing much is is not going to face a lot of challenge in this in this region, you know, and I think that maybe that's the way it's set up, you know, that's fine, but I don't really think that there's a team in that bracket that could beat them. You know, I think that Iowa could give them a game. I think Kansas could, but you know, I those are the only teams that I think could possibly beat Gonzaga in this region. In the South region, Baylor's the number 1. You know, Baylor, I think, has a little bit more of a tougher path, um, especially who they might play in the regional final if they get through. Um, Villanova's a team to watch. Connor Gillespie is out. But, you know, sometimes this crazy stuff happens where a really good player gets injured, you know, before or during the tournament, and it galvanizes a team. You know, we saw it with Auburn two years ago when they lost uh, Chuma Okiki in the Sweet 16, you know, and they went all the way to the, to the Final Four you know, lost one of their best players and continued to go go forward. So, you know, don't rule out Villanova. You know, don't be surprised if they go deep. I don't have them going past the second round, but they're a team that, like, if they get hot, they could get hot and they could really ruin some people's brackets. Um, they're, all, they're always a very well-coached team. Jay Wright's one of, the best, one of the best in the business. So definitely keep an eye out on that team. You know, Arkansas and Ohio State, I think, are two teams that would make a really interesting uh, Sweet 16 game. I think that that's going to happen, although Utah State is a team that I think could really mess up a lot of people's brackets. Um, So uh, the play-in games, uh, Norfolk State, Appalachian State, winner plays Gonzaga, um, and then Wichita State and Drake, and the winner plays USC. So that's in the West. So... I think Baylor and Ohio State will meet in the Elite Eight. I like Ohio State to win. Um, I really liked how they played in the Big Ten tournament. Um, but I think that that's a game that could really be a back-and-forth type of game. Um, but I have Ohio State and I have Gonzaga going to the Final Four in the East region. You know, Mount St. Mary's, Texas Southern, winner will play Michigan. And then Michigan State, UCLA, winner will play BYU in the East region. Um, so I think in this region, 
you know, Michigan, I think is going to go pretty far, but I think they might, they might notice Livers' absence when they get further, like into the Sweet 16. Um, Georgetown's a team that I know everyone in America is going to pick this team to win because, you know, stole a bid, you know, got that automatic bid, winning the winning the Big East tournament. You know, Patrick Ewing has gotten those guys playing at a really at at a great at a high level in the last couple of weeks, and I think that he deserves credit for it. But I also think that while I think it's it's great that he is coaching and is doing a great job with these kids, I think that the kids deserve credit. You know, this isn't just Patrick Ewing's team. You know, this is a team that has a couple of very talented kids that are playing really well at a, at a great time. So, you know, they're a team that I think could win a first-round game. Um, I don't think they're going to go beyond that. I think so I have Florida State moving to the Sweet 16. I actually have Florida State beating Michigan. I think that Florida State's a team that's very deep, and if they get to play a team like Michigan that's shorthanded a little bit with Livers being out, Florida State could absolutely expose them um, in this game. So I have Florida State going to the Elite Eight. Um, I have Texas going through. I think that Michigan State, UCLA, whoever wins the uh, first four game will beat BYU in the first round. That might be a little bit crazy, but, you know, Michigan State's very well coached. I think that they should be able to get through the first four, and then I have them as an upset pick in the first round. Um you know, UConn's back in the tournament. James Booknight has been a really solid player for them, um, and he's a guy to watch. Definitely, um, definitely watch him. Um, also, I was going to mention for LSU, Cam Thomas, uh, one of their guards, is a guy who can light up the scoreboard. So uh, LSU, I think, could give Michigan a really tough game in the second round, and they could even beat them. You know, that that's one of these things about this tournament that Really, really, truly, any team can win on any given day. You know, you could see Michigan just having a bad day and going down. You know, you could see any of these one seeds going down early. You know, I don't think they'll lose in the first round, but, you know, crazier things have happened. You know, one seeds have lost. So, yeah, well, one one seed has lost. Virginia lost three years ago in the first round. So it's very possible, but... You know, I think that you're going to see a lot of the top teams going through. You know, I think that this is a tournament that I, I think we're all hoping is going to be crazy. But I think at the end of the day, you're probably just going to see the best teams, you know, go forward, which is great because you want to see the best teams play the best teams. Um, so I have Texas and Florida State in the East. Um, I just think Texas's guard play um, is going to present some problems for Alabama's defense. But they are a very good defensive team. So it could really be a strength-against-strength strength type game. Um, so I have Texas advancing out of the East bracket. Um, I have Illinois advancing out of the Midwest. You know, Illinois is a team that I don't think is going to face a lot of, a lot of, like, big-time competition in this bracket. You know, I think that they could face an issue against Oklahoma State as they possibly could end up playing each other um, in the Sweet 16, but I just don't think Illinois is going to lose in this bracket, I really don't think that there's a team that can beat them. Um, Oklahoma State, Cade Cunningham, definitely watch him. He's a guy that most likely will be the number one pick in the NBA draft, so definitely, uh, if you could watch Oklahoma State's games, definitely do that. Oregon State's another team that has stolen a bid, so I think that there uh, could be a popular upset pick against Tennessee. Uh, Syracuse, I know everyone is going to pick Syracuse. 
because of that 2-3 zone, and it frustrates teams. It doesn't make sense how it works every single time, but uh, Syracuse, I think, is winning a first-round game, and they very well could make a huge run. And yeah, they're a team that is going is absolutely going to frustrate or going to destroy people's brackets if they get further than the second round. It is going to frustrate a lot of people. Um, but there is a great possibility that you see, could see Syracuse-West Virginia in the second round, see a great coaching matchup. Bob Huggins for West Virginia, Jim Beheim for Syracuse. Uh, Clemson, I have them coming out of the first round game against Rutgers. Rutgers is in the tournament for the first time in a while. Also, you have a number of teams that are in the tournament for the first time in a long time. You have Oregon State that's in, in this bracket, in the Midwest in particular. You have Drexel, the 16 seed. They have not been in the tournament since the 90s. Um, Clemson is back after a couple of years. Um, so I think that Houston is going to go on a decent run. They're a team that can score with the best of them. I think that West Virginia beats them in the Sweet 16, and I have Illinois going through um, to the Final Four. So to recap, my Final Four is Ohio State against Illinois in the first game, and then Gonzaga against Texas. So I have Gonzaga winning it. I think that they are top to bottom the best team in the country, and you know I really don't think that there's a team out there that you know can beat them. But again, anything can happen. You know, it's also worth mentioning that Gonzaga is going into the tournament undefeated. Uh, this would be the first time since 1976. Um, if Gonzaga is able to win the national championship, this would be the first time since 1976 that a team completes an undefeated season. So uh, definitely keep that in mind. If you're going to pick Gonzaga, I know that I am, you know, just because I think that, you know, they are the best team in the country. But um, keep in mind that, you know, everyone is going to have insights about the brackets but have fun with it you know that that's why this is such a fun time of year because it's just such a fun thing to do and just to pick teams and see how your brackets do you know it's fun and I know that people get really competitive and you know it's it's just natural competition is natural but just just have fun with it don't don't get too upset you know don't don't start getting really pissed you know and Losing your mind because your bracket's not doing well because I got news for you. I did horrible last year. And, you know, yeah, I know that I know a lot about sports. I have a podcast. I've been talking about sports pretty much since I can remember. But that doesn't mean that I know everything, you know. I, you know, there were 16 first-round games um, on the first day last year, and I got 13 right, you know, and I just did horribly the rest of the brackets. So, you know... Don't feel intimidated by anything, you know, don't feel like you have to listen to people's, you know, the experts or whatever, you know, there's plenty of tools that you can use to try to pick a good bracket, but just remember, it's just a fun thing. At the end of the day, it's fun, enjoy it, enjoy the bracket pools, enjoy getting, you know, playfully competitive with your friends, uh, because it's fun. So um, just a reminder when you're doing that, when you're watching these games, um, so ESPN, great move by them having a uh, women's tournament challenge. I think that that was implemented maybe two or three years ago. So, you know, same thing. You can uh, submit a bracket um, for the women's tournament. So that's what I did. You know, granted, I don't know a lot. You know, I know a lot of, like, the top teams, but that's pretty much it. But 
uh, definitely this is going to be a fun tournament for the women as well. They will be in San Antonio, um, in the San Antonio area. So, you know, it will be exciting. You know, I think that this is a year that, you know, could be interesting. But I also think, like the men's tournament, this is also going to be a tournament that I think just the top teams are going to be able to to go through. So I do have UConn winning, but uh, there are a couple teams to watch. Uh, Stanford and Louisville, the top two seeds in the Alamo region. So let me just say, so this is something I noticed the other day. Um, the women's tournament has regions that are named for different things in the San Antonio area, I'm pretty sure. Um, now, I kind of wish that the men's tournament did that instead of just doing the East, West, South, Midwest, because it's like, it doesn't matter. They're like, they're all going to be in the Indianapolis area. So, you know, the naming of the regions are kind of arbitrary. I kind of feel like it would have been fun for them to, you know, name the tournaments after, you know, places in Indiana or places in Indianapolis. I think that could have been pretty cool. So kind of a missed opportunity there. So for example, um, you have Stanford and Louisville, the top two seeds in the Alamo region, and then Yukon and Baylor are the top two seeds in the Riverwalk uh, uh, region. So I don't know. I kind of wish the men's tournament could have done something like that to make it a little more interesting instead of just East, West, Southwest, uh, East, West, Midwest, and South. Um, so I think Stanford and Yukon should be able to get through these brackets. Uh, Baylor and Tennessee are two teams that absolutely could be an issue uh, for UConn if they get through to the Elite Eight. Uh, for Stanford, I think they should be able to get through. Louisville might present some issues for them, but um, I think that in these two brackets, you should see the top teams going uh, far. So um, in the hem- hemisphere, I think that's how you say it, um, in this bracket, you have South Carolina and Maryland, the top two seeds, UCLA. Uh, Texas and West Virginia, some teams to keep an eye on also. Um, So in this bracket, you know, assuming that this happens in the Elite Eight, South Carolina, the one seed, Maryland, the two seed, I think that Maryland could beat South Carolina here. Uh, Maryland's a team that has scored a lot of points this season, a really good offensive team, um, could could present some problems for South Carolina. They are really well coached, but I just thought, you know what? I think Maryland will win. I think that they can score a lot of points and they can get to the final four. So, um, again, I'm kind of just going on the little that I know about women's college basketball. Um, so NC State and Texas A&M, the top two seeds in the Mercado region. Um, I think that they will go through. Uh, Rutgers is a team that I think could go on a really good run. Um they're a team that I think could get hot at a random time. Um, and they could, you know, make things interesting for some of the top seeds in that region. So for my final four of UConn, Texas A&M, Stanford, and Maryland, I have UConn winning it. I know that, you know, when you think of women's college basketball, you think of UConn, you think about the, you know, dominance that they've had for so many years. But I will say that the women's game in the last, like, five or so years there are many teams that, you know, are very well coached, very good players, and anyone can knock off this team. You know, I think we've seen an explosion in the last five years of good basketball programs in the women's game, not just UConn. You know, teams that have beaten UConn in the tournament. You've also seen some, you know, great games 
you know, I think for both of these tournaments, you could see some great games between, you know, some really, some really good teams that you could see a lot of, you know, one and two seeds playing each other, you know, that could produce some really, really good games, really exciting games, some buzzer beaters and things like that. I mean, the women's game has had no shortage of, of buzzer beaters and clutch shots in the last couple of years of their tournaments. So uh, it's going to be awesome, you know. Just remember, again, that this is fun. Don't get too tied up in the brackets. Don't get too tied up in how your bracket's doing, you know. I know that, obviously, we all want to do better than the other person. We all want to do better than our coworkers and our friends and our family. Um, But just remember that it's fun, and these kids are playing their hearts out, you know. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of us get really competitive when we, you know, watch these tournaments. But just remember, these kids are playing as hard as they possibly can. And these kids are playing because they didn't have an opportunity to play last year, you know, and it's, it's for that, you know, and I know that all of this is something that we're all excited for, but I also think that we have to be mindful that, you know, there, this, this tournament is going on during a pandemic and uh, there very well could be cancellations. There very well could be positive tests. You know, I think that the NCAA is doing the best that they can to put this tournament on. Now, I know that, you know, having a conversation about the NCAA and, you know, the athletes and getting paid and all that, I think that's a separate conversation, you know, to have for a separate time. You know, and I think some people could argue that the NCAA really is kind of putting these these teams and these players at risk, you know, and I think that that's, that's a separate conversation to have. But um, just be aware that this could absolutely happen, that you could see some teams that, you know, have to forfeit games. You know, we saw that in some of the conference tournaments. Um, So, you know, don't be surprised if that happens. You know, I know that that's not something we want to think about. I think we all want to think about our brackets and games and watching all these games, you know, in the next couple days, but it very well could happen, you know, and I think that you just got to hope that things go as well as they possibly can, that they keep the positive test to an absolute minimum, You know, I think that they probably are going to happen. But I think just hoping that, you know, this can, this tournament can go on and both of these tournaments can go on um, in the Indianapolis area and the Sandy and San Antonio area. So uh, that probably does it for college basketball, talking about the uh, tournament previews. Um, You know, you have until tomorrow at noon to fill out brackets. Uh, I've already filled out a couple of mine, so... One of the mistakes I I had made in previous years is filling out multiple brackets and having them be different, having them be slightly different. And I realized that that's a really stupid thing to do because when you're watching games, you know, it becomes confusing. You have to remember, who did I have in this bracket, you know, and, you know, did I have this team to win? Oh, I want this bracket to do well, but not this one. So it got confusing for me. And so I just decided that, you know what, every bracket I do is going to be the same so that I can keep track of it. It may sound crazy to some people, but I just want to do every bracket consistent. Now, there is a site that I use called What If Sports that you can simulate sports matchups. So obviously I did that for the NCAA tournament. Uh, You know me and how much of a crazy psychopath I am when it comes to sports. So I did that. That's the only bracket that is different from the other ones that I've done. Um... You know, so yeah, enjoy the games. It's going to be awesome. Four games tonight 
And then the real stuff starts tomorrow at noon. And then Friday at noon. Or, and then Saturday at noon. So you have games all day tomorrow and Saturday. So uh, happy happy bracket uh, day or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, all right. So that's en- enough about the brackets. Uh, we will talk about the Bruins and uh, just what's been going on recently. And uh, a lot of it's not been good. Um, you know, I know that they had a great win. The other night, it was really a big-time, you know, team-building type of win um, that you got a monster game from Dan Vladar, who had to play uh, because Tuka Rask is a little banged up and Halak had played the night before. Um, but he was amazing. You know, he was outstanding. Uh, made an unbelievable save in the first first period on Colton Sevier uh, with a stick looked like Dominic Kashuk with that save. That was crazy. Uh, one of those paddle saves. Um, so... He was great. He was really good the other night. Bruins were able to get the win 2-1. to one. Uh, Trent Frederick getting the game-winning goal in the third period. Um, I do want to talk about kind of the future of goaltending with the Bruins in, in a little bit, but it was a good win. You know, it was good to see the Bruins get into the win column. They've really been struggling 4-8-2 uh, and two in their last 14 games. So, or no, 5-7-2, and two, excuse me, because they won on uh, Tuesday. So, you know, good stuff from the Bruins in that game. Good, solid defensive game. Vladar was great. Um, Oscar Steen made his NHL debut as well. He looked pretty solid. You know, I think that one of the things that I've noticed from watching the Bruins in the last couple of years and their prospects is they never look out of place. You know, I know that some of the prospects have not panned out the way that the Bruins have hoped. Um, but I think, honestly, when you look at some of these guys and when, and when they, you know, jump into play, from the AHL to the NHL is they never look out of place. And I really think that that is due to how great of a coach Jay Leach is and uh, the AHL coach in, in, in Providence that he does such a great job for preparing these guys to play in the NHL. And um, I think it helps a lot that Bruce Cassidy had been the coach in Providence too. And I know that that's kind of an underrated thing that we don't really think about as Bruins fans, but I think that that has a lot to do with why you see guys come into the NHL and they don't look out of place. You know, like Vladar made his first start and was great. You know, Steen played in his first game and looked pretty decent. You know, Vladar obviously had played in had played in the bubble um, over the summer, so this technically was his second game. But you know, first start really in a huge important spot for the Bruins and got the win and and was great. So. You know, two solid debuts for both of those guys on Tuesday night. Um, But the secondary scoring is still a huge problem. Um, And it's one of those things that, you know, and I know that this is going to sound kind of like I'm making excuses. But I think that when you are going, when you you have gone cold scoring-wise and you've really only been able to get consistent goal scoring from a couple of players, you know, on one line, that everything is difficult, that you just cannot score, that if you can't score, you cannot score, that, uh, you know, you miss open nets, you, you know, miss on these amazing scoring chances. Like, there was a chance, um, I forget which game it was, but, you know, David Krejci, open net, and goalie, I forget who the goalie was, but made a paddle save much like Vladar did. And it just was like, oh my God, like when it's going bad, it's going bad and nothing goes in, you know? And I think the Bruins, unfortunately, are in 
a slump like that where nothing is coming easy and they have to do, you know, everything they can to score goals. So it was good to see the Bruins break through, but geez, it's just, there are certain guys in this roster that I think are really running out of time and need to start producing or else they're going to be out the door. Um, And I think that, you know, it's good to see that Jake DeBrusque has looked better, I think, since his benching, but you know, it's just like at a certain point you need this. You need you need production. At a certain point, you can't just keep saying, "Oh, well, he looked good. He was solid. Got shots and goal." At a certain point, you need to score goals. You know, and that does it. Not only falls for the young guys, that falls for Craig Smith too. You know, he has four goals on the season. Charlie Coyle went five games without attempting a shot. I don't understand how that's even possible. You know, and I know that Charlie's primary. His primary role with this team is to be a is to be a center and kind of be more of a passing player, but to have no shots in five straight games is just I don't get that. The Bruins had eighteen shots on goal um on on Monday in Pittsburgh in that loss. And it just is like it it's 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 unacceptable. You know, that loss to the Rangers last this past weekend unacceptable you know I have not seen a Bruins team play like that in a very long time and you know I hope that Don Sweeney's not bluffing when he says you know we might shake things up if things don't change and they should there are certain guys that I think are way too comfortable in their spot on this team Um, and I don't really want to name names but you can kind of guess who they are in terms of certain guys that have been in and out of the lineup recently um, and it's not it's not every guy that's a goal scorer, even that, too. You know, I think that there are some other guys in other roles that, you know, are not playing with the required energy, aren't playing with the required effort that they need to have. Um, and so I think, you know, the the team definitely is going to need is going to need a trade. And I know that we all want the same guys to be on this team, but. You know, it, it's obvious that this team needs some new players, you know, and I think needs a inf- in infusion of talent from somewhere else. Um, and so I think you just need consistency and you just need a consistent goal scoring. You need to get it from everyone because, you know, if, if, if it continues to happen that the Bruins just get goals from the top line, I got news for you. They're not going anywhere in the playoffs. You know, I don't want to, you know, harp on it, but this is why they got to the cup in 2019 is because they went out at the deadline and they got two guys that immediately helped five on five scoring. You cannot expect with this team that they're going to just go back to the Stanley Cup final, that they're going to go deep in the playoffs with this team. You cannot expect that. You know, I don't understand how some people can think that based on what they've seen this season. Um, So, you know, still, I think that, the team is in need of a trade. And I still think, you know, whether he's been playing better or not, I still think Jake DeBrusque probably probably should get traded because I think that, you know, if he it doesn't matter how he's playing. You know, I think that even if he's playing well, you could still trade him because I think he's got good value. You know, it will only have one more year on his contract after this. You know, just signed a two-year deal um, in the offseason. So... You know, I really think that he's a guy that could get moved. I think Anders Bjork is someone that probably should get moved sooner rather than later. Um, 
I just think he's not making as much of an impact. And I know that, you know, I've talked about him at, on, at various points, and I think that it's important that the Bruins reevaluate what he is as a player, you know, and kind of know that he's maybe not, maybe less of a goal scorer, but you need to be able to do something. And, you know, I don't know. I'm just kind of getting tired of certain people, you know, on Bruins Twitter. I'm not going to name names, but I think there are some people that tend to overvalue some of these young guys and tend to think that they are better than what they are, or what they've showed. And I think there are some people that think that Anders Bjork is better than he is. And I think that you kind of need to take a look in the mirror and realize that you probably are overvaluing certain guys. And, you know, I think that, and I, and I, and I mentioned this, you know, maybe it was last week or two weeks ago that, you know, there's some, there's some like Ryan Donato a little bit in Anders Bjork that he's a guy that in college was an outstanding player, you know, was a really good, you know, point producer, you know, and he's kind of struggled to find a role with the Bruins. And it's kind of been that way, you know, his whole career and a change of scenery might help him. But, you know, I just don't think that he's that good, you know, based on what we've seen from him. And I know that he still has value. This isn't to say that I think that he's like a bad player. I know I just said he's not that good, but you know, I think that he does bring he does bring value because he does bring value with his speed and with his penalty killing and is a good forechecker and is a really solid player that you can throw out there on the fourth line. But when the Bruins brought him in initially, you know, he was going to be a young player that was going to help score goals like like similar to a DeBrusque. He's not done that at all consistently. And I just think that if the Bruins really want to make a trade and want to, you know, go for it at the trade deadline, um, they're going to have to trade some of these guys because it's like this. That's how trades work. You have to trade people of value to get someone else of value. You can't just trade, you know, lesser prospects and, you know, third round picks for Matthias Eckholm. It's like... You have to trade solid players for solid players. Like, this is how trades work, you know? And again, it's just like, I think that it's pretty obvious that the Bruins are a team that kind of needs some help, you know? I, I know that they won the other night, and they've had wins before, but all too often they've had good wins this season, and then they follow it up with piss-poor piss performances, you know? I mean... <laughs> You remember that big win that they had against the Capitals when, you know, Tom Wilson knocks out Brandon Carlo and the Bruins dominate the dominate the Caps? Well, then what happened two nights later? Bruins play the play the Devils and play like trash, you know? It's like you have to be able to play with some consistency, and we've not seen seen that with the Bruins. So, you know, we'll see what happens tonight. You know, it is worth noting that both both of the Bruins and the Sabres have canceled their morning skate. So there's a possibility that this game doesn't happen. I think at the moment the game is still on, um, but obviously don't take my word as gospel as that could possibly change. Um, so one last Bruins thing I wanted to talk about, um, and we got kind of a glimpse into the future of this the other night, and it's the future of the Bruins goalie position. And, what we saw the other night from Dan Vladar was great. You know, something that I think we could look into the future and be like, okay, this is a guy that could possibly be the Bruins' next goalie. Um, and I think that 
with Tukarask and Yaroslav Halak set to be free agents um, at, at, at the end of the season, you know, brings into question, when should that change happen? You know, when should the, the young goalies be ready to kind of take over the team? Um, and I think that it's, it's an interesting question because I think that obviously right now, the future, no one knows what's going to happen. Um, I think that if, if I'm being honest about Rask and, and Halak, I think that what, what would behoove the Bruins is to bring back one of those guys, um, not bring back both. I think that it would make sense to bring back one of them and use one of the younger goalies to kind of be a 1A and 1B type of thing. You know, and then it kind of can give them a bridge into the future without being, okay, kid, go and start for the Bruins, you know, day one of the season. Um, now, I don't think it really matters who it is, whether it's Rask or Halak. You know, I think that definitely I would lean more towards Rask, I think just because he means a lot to this franchise and obviously is still a very, very good goalie. Um, and Halak is too, but I think that you know, Halak's a guy that I think probably could get other offers from other teams. Um, but I don't know, you know, maybe at his age, maybe not necessarily, but I think it wouldn't make sense for the Bruins to bring both of the guys back because I think you have two young goalies who I think are almost ready to kind of get regular NHL playing time. Um, and Vladar was really solid. You know, we see how he does. Maybe if he appears in more games this season, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Jeremy Swayman gets any action too. You know, I think that both Swayman and Vladar are, you know, options for the Bruins in the future. You know, that one of those guys could absolutely be the next goalie that takes over for the Bruins. And I think that, you know, the team, we've been spoiled by really good goaltending. Now, yeah, some people want to bitch and moan about Tukarask, and, you know, I don't really want to have that conversation, but he's been good for the majority of his career. He's been very good, very solid. You know what you're going to get. You know you're going to get a solid year from him. You know, and then even before that, Tim Thomas was, you know, ridiculous. So it's like the Bruins have had amazing goaltending for, you know, nearly, nearly like 12, 13 years. If you go back to Tim Thomas's first Vesna Trophy win in 08, 09. Um, so I think that, you know, it's interesting to think about the future of the Bruins goalie, goalie position. And, you know, I think the future's bright. I think that... Vladar is a guy that can play really well and has played really well in Providence. Swayman has played really well there too. So, you know, I think that both of these guys, you could absolutely see these guys kind of being the goalie of the future. And hopefully the Bruins can hang on to both of these guys. And, you know, you can have two young goalies, much like kind of the Rangers do with Georgiev and Shesterkin. Um, and so I think, you know, again, I think it would be smart to sign one of the older goaltenders this off season and maybe if maybe it's a one year deal, maybe it's a two year deal and maybe you kind of ease in one of the young guys to, you know, eventually take over. Um, you know, I think that it is interesting that, you know, Tuco is making seven million dollars. He'll be off that contract this off season and, you know, if the Bruins re sign him, what could that contract look like? Could it be a one year deal? Could it be a two year deal? Probably is not gonna be making seven million dollars. And if he does, Don Sweeney should be fired, but you know, I think the Bruins could get to grass signed for two and a half, three million for a season or two, you know, and then ease in one of the young goaltenders. But um, it was definitely an interesting kind of look into the future for um, Dan Vladar. I hope that Jeremy Swayman gets an opportunity to make a start 
at some point this season. You know, maybe it's at the very end of the season, um, and maybe the Bruins have clinched a playoff spot and know where they're going to be, and maybe they can bring him up and have him start in a game. Um, but it was good stuff to see from Vladar. I mean, I did not expect the performance that he had. That save was awesome. Please see if you can go find that on YouTube because it was ridiculous. Um, so we will take a look around the rest of the NHL. Obviously, we mentioned that the Bruins and the Sabres canceled morning skates. The Bruins, I believe, have a player that is in the COVID-19 protocols. Um, possibly could be a false positive. Not really sure. Um, it also sounds like the, sta- the Sabres have a team staffer that has either tested positive or maybe is in the protocols. So as of right now, I think the game is still on, but that very well could change. Um, So big news out of New York. The Islanders announced the other day that Anders Lee is going to miss the rest of the season with an ACL injury. So obviously that's a huge blow to them, losing their captain, losing one of their best offensive players. Um, So what does that mean for the Islanders? Well, it probably means that they're going to go try to acquire some talent at the trade deadline would not be surprised. Lou Lamorello is uh, not known for being a guy that uh, sits back, sits back and relaxes. Uh, So you can, you can imagine that they're going to be aggressive at the trade deadline. Um, Also the Sabres announced that Ralph Kruger is, has been relieved of his duties as head coach. So uh, the Bruins hopefully taking on the Sabres tonight, they will be under their interim coach and, I saw the interim coach's name, too, in the paper, and I just totally forget who it is. I can click on and find out who it is. Um, but I know it's one of their assistant coaches. Uh, Don Granado will take over um, as an interim coach. The Sabres have lost 12 straight games, so it's uh, been kind of ugly recently for them. Jack Eichel has been out a little bit, I think, with an upper body injury. So we'll take a look at the standings right now in the NHL as uh, we are roughly at the midway point of the season. Um, the Bruins have played 27 games, I believe, at the moment. Um, and so game tonight, assuming that it happens, will be the midway point. So the Bruins, at the current moment, stand at fourth place in the Eastern Conference, 34 points, three points ahead of the Philadelphia Flyers, and six points ahead of the Rangers. So... Uh, the Capitals and the Islanders have been playing very, very good hockey recently. Both teams have won nine of their last ten. The Capitals have won their last six. Um, and the Islanders uh, lost the other night, um, but they are still tied for first in the East with 42 points. The Penguins have been playing better as of late, and they have 37 points. Bruins, it is worth noting that the Bruins have two games in hand on Washington and Philadelphia and three games in hand on the Islanders. So the Bruins do have you know, some room that they could possibly make up um, in the standing. So we will look at the Central Division right now. The teams atop of the Central are playing great. Uh, Tampa Bay and Florida atop the division with 42 points. Carolina just won back at 41. Florida has won four straight games. Uh, the Blackhawks still in fourth place in the Central. Columbus is um, behind them, just four points behind, and... Yeah, this has been a division that's kind of been, you know, strange as you've had a couple teams that have postponed a lot of games. Dallas still, you know, has five games in hand on Chicago and they're eight points back. So things maybe could change. But, you know, Dallas has just been kind of average this season. They've just been kind of plugging along. So nothing has really changed much 
for them. Columbus has been very up and down this season. Many are wondering if John Tortorella is coaching for his job right now. Um, and then Nashville, obviously, is having a very poor season. Very interesting uh, to see, you know, how how active are they going to be in the trade market? Are they going to be sellers? Are they going to be selling um, Ekholm and possibly more? Um, in the West Division, you have Vegas, who has built a four-point lead over Minnesota and a five-point lead over Colorado. Um, St. Louis has fallen back a little bit. They've not been playing you know, great hockey compared to the other teams in the division. Uh, Minnesota has won five straight, and Colorado and Vegas have won four straight. Um, so St. Louis currently just with a three-point lead over fifth-place Los Angeles uh, for that last playoff spot in the West. You know, Minnesota <laughs> has been a very fun team to watch uh, with Kirill Kaprizov and how outstanding he's been. But, you know, Vegas has been slow and steady. They're performing really, really well right now, 41 points. Um, and actually, it's ironic that uh, the Leafs, you know, were playing at such a high level recently as they kind of looked like they were running away with the league, but now they have been passed in terms of points in the NHL. So actually, as of right now, there are four teams that are tied with the mo- tied for the most points, Tampa Bay, Florida, Montreal, uh, Tampa Bay, Florida, Washington, <laughs> and the Islanders. So... As we take a look at the North, Toronto is um, still on top of the North. Uh, You have Winnipeg and Edmonton just two points back um, of first place. So Winnipeg's been playing really well recently. Uh, Toronto's kind of just been playing average 5-5 in their last 10. Uh, Winnipeg has had points in seven of their last 10. And then you have currently Montreal with a two-point lead over fifth place Vancouver, but Montreal does have four um, games in hand, or Vancouver is four, no, Montreal is four games in hand on Vancouver, so things are not looking great for Vancouver, even still with them just two points out of the playoffs. Um, And they won three straight, seven out of ten, but, you know, obviously with a lot of games in hand, you know, the, the deficit is probably bigger than it looks. Uh, Winnipeg has also played, or Edmonton has played a lot of games all, as well. They, they, they've played 32. Montreal, Winnipeg have played 29, Toronto 30. So that's something to keep in mind. So we actually, from Bleacher Report, or some breaking news uh, right now on the NFL front. Not really much of a surprising move, but NFL Network is reporting that the Patriots are sending Ryan Izzo uh, to Houston for a seventh-round pick in next year's draft. So uh, Izzo obviously played a tight end for the Patriots the last two seasons. You know, didn't really make too much of an impact, um, but Patriots getting a draft pick for him, which, you know, I think is good. You know, anytime you can get some value out of a player, I think that that's fine. I know it's a seventh-round pick and, you know, in all likelihood won't pan out, but, you know, not the worst idea, and it made sense. You know, he definitely was going to be passed on the depth chart. Um, I wouldn't. I would be very surprised if the Patriots brought Matt Lacoste back um, as well, who was another tight end who played for the team last season, um, or no, played for them two years ago and then it opted out last season. Um, but you know, obviously with Henry and Smith, you know, adding to Dalton Keene and Devin Asiasi, you know, that's four guys. You know, you definitely don't need five guys. So you know, don't expect Lacoste to be back. Uh, for the Patriots um, 
So uh, as we are finished with the NHL, we'll move on to the NBA. And yeah, we're kind of, you know, it, when, when we last spoke about the Celtics, um, I think it was coming off that, or no, it was right before they started the second half of the season, before they played the Nets. You know, it seemed like the Celtics had gone into the break, uh, the All-Star break, you know, playing well, winning four straight games, you know, playing pretty well. Kemba Walker had been playing pretty well. The Celtics, kind of for the first time since the very beginning of the season, you know, were playing with some positivity, positivity, and looked like maybe the team had turned a corner. Um, and then the second half of the year started, and the Celtics, granted, you know, did have a couple of tough matchups uh, right out of the gate, you know, playing the Nets on the first game back, and Celtics could not stop Kyrie Irving. You know, very many teams can, but, you know, they struggle. They struggle that first game against the Nets, and it was like, okay, you know what, first game after the All-Star break, it's fair. You know, you can have struggles. I think that's fair. Uh, Celtics come back, get a win against the Rockets, then lose to the Jazz in a game that it was very clear that, you know, the Utah Jazz are one of the best teams in the league and will continue to be. Um, and then the Celtics dropped a stinker last night in Cleveland. Um, and just... It, it continues to happen. The, uh, the Celtics continue to lose to teams that they shouldn't, and it's maddening at this point. And, you know, and I know I've said this from the start, you know, I think that Brad Stevens definitely deserves some blame and probably some good blame that, you know, you should be getting your team ready to play games like this. I don't care who you're playing. You should be able to motivate your guys to play at a level that's expected. But... At the same time, the players in that room need to know what's expected too. And they need to, you know, understand that when you play well and play a certain way and play with energy, you need to play that way every night. It just kind of blows my mind that the Celtics are still having trouble with this, you know. And I think that some of the blame should absolutely go on Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I know that they've been playing well, but... You know, especially when you're playing on a second of a back-to-back, you know Kemba Walker is not going to be there. It's kind of up to you to, you know, be a leader for this team. And I think the two of them, they're kind of, there's kind of a little more to be expected from them, you know. And it's not something that you can easily measure. You can easily measure by watching a game or looking at a box score. But, you know... They need to develop better into leaders, you know, and I think that they need to understand that, you know, it's their team. You know, Kemba Walker's here. Marcus Smart is here. They are good, you know, role players and understand what it takes to win. But I think at a certain point, you need to have your best players be your best leaders. And you need to, you know, they they need to be better. You know, everyone in this team needs to be better. Um, and need to do what is expected and what is expected in terms of effort and defensive intensity. It's like these things should not be things that are hard. You should be able to bring this naturally, you know, and Marcus Smart's been back. He's been back for four games, you know, and I know a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, they've been bad defensively. You know, Marcus hasn't come back yet. Well, you know, Marcus is back and they're still playing this way. So that should tell you that, okay, it's not Marcus Smart. You know, it should 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 have been obvious to people watching, even when Marcus Smart wasn't playing, that, okay, these issues go a lot deeper than him. And it should tell you that right now. Um, so I just, it's, it's concerning. It's so concerning that the Celtics are 
not bringing effort in first halves of games and as a result get behind bad teams and need to you know have so much in the tank to be able to come back and complete a comeback and they couldn't do it last night and it's just like well if you'd started on time you probably would have been fine these are games that you should not have to sweat these are games that if you bring good consistent effort and you play hard for three quarters you should be fine you know you don't have to play a full 48 minutes against this team but I'm sorry if you just don't care for the first half of the game you know it's going to it's going to snowball I just like I think I'm just at my wits end with this team that I think we just need to accept that whatever this team is going to be what it's going to be it's good like you are going to be what your record says you are the record says that the Celtics are a 500 team and that's the team that they've been all season long almost all season long so I just I I don't understand what it is you know it it Brad Stevens needs to be better the Celtics players need to be better you know the guys that are the core of this team, are the leaders of this team, have to be better, you know? And I understand that, you know, Kemba's not going to be playing second of a back-to-back because they're trying to work him back and keep him as healthy as they can. But, like, you need to understand that he's not going to be playing in back-to-backs. And you need to understand that you need to bring the the, the motivation and the, you know, effort to play. It's not... It's, like, this shouldn't be hard. And it's like, I don't understand why it's so hard. And I think that... You know, this kind of leads into my next topic with the Celtics is, you know, if the Celtics really are what their record, what their record says that they are, a 500 team that, you know, is probably going to be a five or a six seed in the playoffs and is going to be a team that talent-wise, you know, could go deep in the playoffs, but it only is going to go how far they can push themselves and this and that. So if that if that if this is what the Celtics are going to be, why the hell does it make sense for them to add anything major at the trade deadline? You know, I'm not going to say that oh the Celtics shouldn't make any moves at the trade deadline, which I think that they should. I think that you know it's something that they should explore to help the team right now um, because that's what it's for. You know, it's help to help your team right now. But I would be shocked if they use any part of the trade a player exception, or if they do, they use a small amount because, again, and I said this last week, and this is even before they started the second half, that there's no player out there that can just magically make the Celtics a better team, that can magically make them a title contender and a true title contender. You know, there there's not a move out there that's going to make them like that. You know, and I think that you've seen some deals. You saw some deals yesterday. Um, P.J. Tucker... Uh, going to the Bucks, and we'll talk about that in a second. Trevor Ariza going to the Heat, we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, the Celtics could absolutely make a move like that. But I also just think, well, why? Why why would you make a move like that? Because I think it's obvious that you are not going to really be competing for a championship this year. And, you know, what kind of move like that is really going to make them better? You know, and I think that they can make moves. They can make moves with the idea that maybe they bring these guys back next season and they have them under contract. And I think that that's a fair point. Um, but I also just think they're not going to be trading for Vucevic. They're not going to be trading for Harrison Barnes. They're not going to be trading for any of these big-time, big-name players because it's not going to help them. You know. And I said this with the Bruins, and maybe I said this last week, but you know, a big trade is not just going to change, change your effort. A big trade is not just going to change the way that you play magically, you know, and I think that some people need to understand that, that, 
you know, you have a team that's not putting the effort forth, forth right now. Why, you know, why is a trade going to change that? Why is that going to be something that lights a fire? Because you thought that Marcus Smart being back was going to light a fire under their defense, and obviously it hasn't, you know, because you have not been able to play good defense down the stretch in the last two games. So, you know, I just don't know what people are expecting at this trade deadline. Should they make a move? Yeah, probably. Could they make a move? Yeah. But it's not going to be anything major. You know, if anything, it's going to be one of those deals that one of the teams, the, the Bucks or the Heat made yesterday. It's going to be something like that. They're not going to use the trade the traded player exception. I would be shocked if they do. Um, so, you know, and I think on the other hand, some people might respond and be like, okay, well, should they be sellers? Well, no, I don't think so because I don't think that any of really the players that they have in this roster, you know, A, are, you know, great value pieces. And, you know, I'm just not even sure, you know, why why would they trade certain guys? So it's just, I, I, I don't get it with this team. You know, it's just on paper, this team, you know, is, I think is, is better and is better built than the team it was two years ago. But, you know, obviously, if guys don't play the way that they, the, the way that they should, then obviously it's going to look worse. You know, I think that the Celtics are better, should be better than what their record is. But you know, in the NBA, you are what your record says that you are, and the record says that the Celtics are a 500 team. And you know, in 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 what world are the Celtics a team that are like well positioned to make a trade for like an All Star player, and that's going to elevate them? It would be different if the Celtics were playing you know, at a close level of, like, Philadelphia and Brooklyn, like, if their record was, like, something like 10 games over 500, and they could make a move, you know, to get even better, that that would be a different story. But that's not where we are right now. The Celtics are at 500, you know, 20 and 20, with, you know, almost to the halfway point of this, or past the halfway point of this season. So it's just, you know, I I don't get it. And it's not something that should be complicated with, effort and defensive intensity these are things that should come without even trying you know you should beat the cleveland cavaliers without even trying you should not have to put forth much effort you know you should have to put forth some effort you know you should have to be able to get up for games and realize okay we got to go to the gym we got to play this team hard the celtics aren't doing that right now they are playing the record they are playing the record of other teams they are just going into these games oh, the Cavs are 14 and 25, we just have to show up, you know, and it's just, we are going down a dangerous path, you know, if the Celtics continue to play like this, we are going down a dangerous path that they're going to stop caring, they're going to lose in the first round, and Brad Stevens will get fired, and the Celtics are not going to be in, or, or won't be going in any direction, you know, that's the worst case scenario if this continues to happen. You know, and I think that some people maybe want Brad Stevens fired, but trust me, that is not a road you want to go down. Because if that happens, this means the Celtics will have tuned a coach out, and, you know, God forbid what happens if they bring in a new coach and they tune that guy out too. You know, that's not a conversation that I think we want to have. Um, so it just it's just disappointing that this continues to happen for the Celtics uh, this season. So look around the rest of the NBA. Um, so obviously... P.J. Tucker, a good addition to the Bucks. You know, I think that the Bucks are a team that really tried to, you know, load up and bring in some good players to surround Giannis, and I think that that's what you're seeing with um, the trade for P.J. Tucker. I think he gives them a solid 
um, you know, versatile defender. He's not necessarily as much of a knockdown shooter as he used to be, but he's still a guy that can knock down, you know, 35% of his threes from the corner. And I think that that's pretty good. So, um, a good, a good trade for them. Um, so then the Miami Heat, you know, made an interesting move bringing in Trevor Ariza from, uh, Oklahoma City. Trevor Ariza's not played this season. Um, so very similar to Andre Iguodala last year, who I think didn't play in Memphis or played very few games in Memphis and then got traded to the Heat and ended up being, you know, big time player, ironically, that we're talking about the Heat. So, uh, very similar type of trade um, here. And I think the Heat are a team that could be very, very aggressive um, at the trade deadline and try to get a player to elevate them um, into kind of a better spot. Um, the Heat are kind of in a spot that I think people wish the Celtics were in, that, you know, they could be in a position that they're playing well right now and they could be in a position to add. Um, but obviously that's not going on with the Celtics right now. So um, good good trade for the Heat, good solid move to get a solid veteran. You know, it's kind of crazy. Trevor Ariza is in his mid-30s, but he's been in the league for like 13 years. You know, I remember when he played for the Lakers in the 2008 uh, finals when they played the Celtics, and it's like, whoa, this guy is really, you know, has really, you know, stayed around um, for a long time and has carved out a decent career. So um, definitely interesting for the Heat. So we'll take a look at the standings right now. Um, in the NBA before we get to some Red Sox. Um, so uh, just just to finish that point on Trevor Ariza, so he was a second-round pick in the 2004 NBA draft, um, has been in the league for 16 seasons, uh, won a championship with the Lakers in 09, averages 10 points and 5 rebounds for his career. He's a career 35% shooter. Uh, came into the league at age 19. He is now 35. Yes, he is 35. So, um, actually, originally was is from Miami. Uh, went to UCLA. Uh, did go to high school in California. So maybe he just was born um, in Miami. But anyway, he is back for the Heat. So, um, a decent addition. A guy that um, could give them some decent value. You know, out of a out of a veteran, much like they got from Iguodala last season. So. Uh, the Nets and the Sixers, um, you know, could be in a good position to add at the trade deadline. Uh, Joel Embiid is out for a decent amount of time after that bone bruise. Um, but so the Nets and the Sixers to- top the Eastern Conference at 28 and 13. The Bucks are a game and a half back of both of them. And then the Heat are in fourth place. And the Heat have been playing really good basketball as of late. Eight wins in their last 10. Um, you have the Nets have won six straight, Bucks have won five straight, so both of those teams are playing well. Um, and you have the Atlanta Hawks, who out of nowhere have won six straight games and are now in sixth place in the Eastern Conference percentage points, or I think that they are ahead of the Celtics based on the win, uh, head-to-head win percentage. Um, so the Celtics sit in seventh place right now. Seventh place. You know, I know that we said that a lot of the Eastern Conference was kind of just average but the Celtics are getting passed now you know and I think that this should start to concern them that they're falling back a little bit and they're dangerously falling close to being out of the playoffs which is not something we want to uh, not not a road that they want to go down um, and then you have the Knicks in eighth place the Bulls are in ninth and then Pacers in tenth um, you have Toronto that had been playing better before the all-star break but they've lost six in a row so they have been kind of falling back a little bit in the West. You have Utah that has built a sizable lead 
over the Suns and the Lakers at two and a half games in first. Phoenix in second, Lakers in third, Anthony Davis still out. Um, so definitely something to monitor for the Lakers. But they have won three straight games, so you know they are kind of playing a little bit better. But Utah's still the class of the West. Uh, the Clippers in fourth, you have Denver that has won eight of their last ten, so they're uh, playing well. They've been playing well recently. Portland, San Antonio, and Dallas at six, seven, and eight, and then Golden State in ninth, Memphis in tenth as the uh, play-in games will happen. So it's important to note the tenth place teams will technically be involved in the playoffs, um, at least to some extent. Um, so. I think that's probably it for the NBA. We'll close on some Red Sox. Um, some good spring training. You know, things have been going on for the Red Sox recently. 9-6-1, uh, and one, they've been playing better in spring ball. You know, it's the record's arbitrary, you know, but it's just really how the guys are performing. That really is what you want to watch. And the Red Sox have gotten good starting pitching in the last couple of games. You know, they've had all five of their presumed starters um, pitch decently well. Garrett Richards um, pitched decently well in his last start. So you have him, you have Eduardo Rodriguez, Nick Pavetta, uh, Nate Evaldi, and um, Martin Perez. So, you know, on on paper, I think it's a much better rotation than what you finished the year with. So, you know, it's good to see that they've been pitching well. Eduardo Rodriguez announced the starter um, yesterday, so he will be the opening day starter for the Red Sox after um, contracting COVID-19 last season. Um, so it's just great. You know, I think that it's been really a journey for him and he feels good. He's been pitching well. And so I think it's, it's great. It's great to see that he will be given the ball to start, uh, the season when the Red Sox play the Orioles. I believe that that game is at Fenway, uh, to start the season. So obviously we'll talk more and more about baseball as we get closer to, um, as we get closer to the start of the season, opening day, April 1st, so two weeks away, uh, Red Sox and Orioles at Fenway Park. So definitely in the next two weeks, we'll be talking to Eric Bellier, probably getting a baseball preview out for you um, as we get closer to the season. So um, good stuff for the Red Sox, good stuff for Eduardo Rodriguez. Bobby Dahlbeck um, has also been performing really, really well recently. Um, he's hit grand slams in the last two games, spring training games. So he's been hitting very well in spring training, you know, strikeouts, I think are kind of up a little bit, but I think that he's not just going to make the strikeouts go away immediately. And it might just be what, who he is as a player, but, you know, I think that, um, it's good to see that he's knocking the cover off the ball and hitting really well and putting the ball in play. I think that that's the biggest thing for Bobby is putting the ball in play, keeping the ball in play as much as he can, you know, and even if you're flying out, even if you're you know, getting outs, you know, you still want to put the bat on the ball. And I think that, you know, for the most part he is, he's performing well, which is great. Um, you know, so I think that most likely he's going to be your starter at first base uh, when the Red Sox open the season against the Orioles. So I uh, continue to watch him, continue to watch how the starting pitching uh, performs, you know, Rodriguez and the rest of the guys, you know, Richards, I think is a guy that I'm most curious about as they start the season, um, just because it's kind of a reclamation project, if you will, the Red Sox just taking a chance on him. Um, and seeing how he performs with that uh, good spin rate of his, whatever the hell that means. Um, I don't understand what it means. You know, actually, ironically, that would probably be a good question for Eric uh, when we talk to him uh, before we start the season. So um, just last two notes I did want to get to um, 
if you're familiar with Boston Marathon and, um, you know, City of Boston and, you know, how they put the marathon together, you're very familiar of the team of Rick and Dick Hoyt um, that um, run the marathon that uh, Dick pushes Rick, you know, in the in the wheelchair. And that's always something that, you know, is such a great thing to see. So sadly, um, Dick passed away yesterday. So um, definitely condolences to, to the Hoyt family. It just is, you know, something that if you're familiar with the marathon and you've, you know, seen them run the marathon, it's just, it's just something that, that, that warms your heart and makes you, makes you feel good. And so I think that, you know, as much as it's, it's, it's sad to report Dick's passing, I think it's good to remember, you know, just how much good they, you know, they, they made you feel for, you know, when you were watching the marathon and, you know, two guys that just are legends in the city of Boston. So I um, just wanted to, to, you know, say my piece because uh, very, very inspiring father-son duo. Um, and then also uh, there was news yesterday in the NBA community, former uh, NBA center Sean, uh, Sean Bradley, I think was in uh, some type of bike accident maybe a couple of months ago and is paralyzed. So, um I just wanted to say, you know, hope the recovery goes, continues to go well for him and um, that, you know, yeah, hopefully that, you know, things go as well as they can, but obviously things are, are scary with uh, the, with those spinal injuries. So just wanted to say, you know, good luck in his recovery and hopefully, you know, he can continue to lead a solid productive life. So I just wanted to touch on those two things before uh, we said a goodbye for today's episode. So, uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook, uh, Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So I'm Garrett Hayden signing off. Everyone enjoy the madness uh, today and through the weekend. And, uh, yeah, have a good weekend. Enjoy the basketball and... Uh, I would say, you know, go a certain team, but I don't really have a team that I'm rooting for. So uh, just enjoy the brackets. Remember, it's all for fun. Uh, Don't get too competitive. All right, everyone. Talk to you later.